we didn't hear these witnesses testify. We don't weigh their credibility. The fact finder did that, whether it's a judge or a jury, did that in the trial court. And we're bound by that unless we could say that no reasonable fact finder under any circumstances would have believed anything this person had to say. It's akin to saying little green men came down from Mars and abducted me kind of thing. Welcome to the Court of Appeals of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law, a personal injury and long-term disability law firm with headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia. Listening to oral arguments is one of the best ways to both learn and stay abreast of the substantive and procedural aspects of practicing law in Virginia. By putting these public domain recordings into the form of a podcast, Ben Glass Law has made it easy for the public to access these recordings. All commentary that is not part of the actual court proceedings is that of the show sponsor. Rashad Isaac Weish versus Commonwealth. I have Mr. Purnell arguing for Mr. Weish today. Good, good afternoon. Good afternoon. You can come forward and proceed when you're ready. Do you know how much time you'd like to reserve for rebuttal? If I may reserve four minutes. Four minutes? Yes. You can proceed whenever you're ready. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Please, the court, justices, this board. First, I want to say thank you in terms of this about for your service. I understand this is Patriot's Day. In terms of it, it is for you without your service that we're not able, we're able to protect those who are before the court and those who do not have to appear. I want to tell you that at the beginning. I am here on behalf of Mr. Weish, who is before the court after criminal convictions that come out of Colonial Heights for malicious wounding, abduction, and two counts of strangulation from a trial that was before the jury issue that we present. In terms of that is regarding about the absence of any physical evidence to support anything that was testified by Ms. Weish, who was the estranged wife of Mr. Weish at that time. We recognize that the standard in terms of this that has gone before the jury, it is all reasonable inferences will go to the moving party or the party in this case, the Commonwealth, because there were convictions in each of the matters. And what we raise here today is whether it is incredulous in some ways because there is a lack of any physical evidence whatsoever of Mr. Weish in terms of it. Well, there's some texts, aren't there? There are, Your Honor. Text messages between them? There are six hours of text messages that begin roughly just after 6 p.m. until midnight. The crimes that are here that resulted in the convictions happened from midnight or sometime after midnight until 6 o'clock in the morning. So the text messages, I would agree, also go to there are pictures that included the injuries and even Mr. Weish talking about his injury to his leg and inability to walk as a result of a crash on a scooter. There were pictures that were used. Well, the victim here, of course, testified to what occurred, including the injuries. I understand your argument from your brief to essentially be because the victim had some prior felony convictions that the fact finder should not have been permitted to even consider believing her. Is that correct? There was a part of what is part of my argument in my brief was that was a fact that was there. There were 11 felony convictions that were in terms of that were talked about here. Precisely, it was more to be there is no physical evidence to even talk about that Mr. Weish was in the apartment in question here during those six hours and no physical evidence to corroborate that these matters happen. And when I say that specifically, I'm talking forensically and physically. Of course, corroboration is not required. Fact finder, in this case, the jury believes 
witnesses for that. That is correct. As I said, that is the standard in terms of which it is. What we believe in terms of on behalf of Mr. Weish in this case is specifically is of how it is so inherent in terms of there is communication that is, the testimony is a broken tablet. There is testimony about being assaulted on the steps and starting at some point recognizing you're bleeding. There's banging on the walls. There are items that at some point even evolve into the kitchen and the struggles that continue. There at no point is anything that is presented. The only thing that's ever presented in terms of that is that the police go to the door and give the protective order that was requested as a result of these crimes. The police meet Ms. Weish at the hospital and there they then take photos and document and then take what she says in terms of the events. That is where we talk about in this instance. There is a scooter that she says and has testified that there was a scooter she says that he left on to report to the police. There is evidence that is presented about that he had a crash and that you could see in terms of the scooter that was quite severely damaged. I'll say that in terms of that where it is. Counsel, the Commonwealth has argued here that your argument on appeal, which is that the victim is essentially inherently incredible, wasn't sufficiently preserved below because you didn't argue to the trial court that she was inherently incredible. Do you agree that your argument is waived or do you think that it was sufficiently preserved below by the argument that was made in the motion to strike? I believe that it was preserved in terms of that by the motion to strike in terms of that. That was the closing argument that was presented altogether. That was the argument that was to counsel. We used the exhibit at the end. When I say about that to the court, there was a poster board of all the exhibits in terms of where there were about the text messages and it was what is missing. As I said, granted, understanding opening is not any part of evidence, but that was the argument and that was the argument presented even then was exactly there is no physical evidence that shows. It stops at just past that midnight and then we have the events. The next thing is... Whether there's physical evidence corroborating testimony is a different argument, it seems to me, from whether or not the evidence taken as a whole is insufficient as a matter of law. I can understand that and respectfully do what we believe in terms of in this instance it was about such an extensive assault. We're talking about a six-hour event that goes there and what is happening at this location, not in several locations, not in places that would have gone on and that there is nothing in terms of that to even say it other than what the witnesses said had happened there. I don't have anything that's beyond that that even places Mr. Weiss there other than that. I recognize at the end that there are text messages that talk about I'm coming to the door, but there are pictures within those text messages and there's a picture of his leg specifically and his communication of his injury and the difficulty. There's also the communication of his desire to see his wife. This is where we find in terms of what is incredulous that there is, for lack of a better term, and I'm being respectful here to Ms. Weiss, no crime scene that is then noted about where this event that goes throughout. You've admitted that you conceded effectively that corroboration requires a matter of law. Judge Schwartz asked you about your legal position, which is inherent in credibility. That is correct. That's what you agreed. What I hear you arguing now is simply basically a re-argument of a jury argument, if you will, that the witness, that there wasn't sufficient corroboration that the witness could have been believed, which is a different argument, it seems to me, from inherent in credibility. The 
corroboration is not required as a matter of law. Well, what I've said in my brief is it's inherently incredible that we talk about that the events happened, that this is a perpetrator who committed the events. She identified him. She said that's the guy who assaulted him, right over there in the courtroom. I would agree in terms of that. I have explained in terms of that from the beginning. I don't question what was not done in the trial court. Of course, we weren't in the courtroom. We didn't hear these witnesses testify. We don't weigh their credibility. The fact finder did that, whether it's a judge or a jury, did that in the trial court. And we're bound by that unless we could say that no reasonable fact finder under any circumstances would have believed anything this person had to say. It's akin to saying little green men came down from Mars and abducted me kind of thing. And unfortunately, I've had that trial before of exactly an abduction. And I do understand that. The argument was in terms of where it is so inherently incredible that from a six-hour encounter, in terms of that, there's nothing in terms of where we are other than these parties have been estranged. I guess the point is the fact finder was able to consider lack of corroboration for whatever weight they wanted to give the fact that there was a lack of corroboration and apparently didn't give it as much weight as you thought they should have. And that's part of the reason why we're here. We have no choice. Otherwise, we would not be here. The other part is, as you said, it's part of what you have in those text messages are those matters. Also part of the defense exhibit, meaning of his injuries, what is shown, what is physically there. What you also have, even if we don't address about alibi one way or another, you do have evidence that is presented about the state of the scooter that he was injured on and what it would have been. There's no identification of exactly that scooter that she says that here it is. Don't have anything else other than to explain to you. Can a jury as the fact finder here look at the fact that you have all these texts going back and forth for hours? I need to come to see you. I want to see you. I've been in an accident. And then they end. And she says he did come. I didn't want to let him in, but I agreed to because he'd been in an accident. And then this happened for six to seven hours after that where he attacked me, look at my face, look at my body, see what happened. I tried to get away. I even got out of the house, tried to get rang on a neighbor's door. But before I could, he grabbed me, pulled me back in by my hair. So you have explanation of what happened during that time period from her. And then, of course, your client doesn't have to put on any evidence. But he did with two alibi witnesses. And then the two alibi witnesses basically say, I don't think he was there the whole time, as his cousin said. I'm not sure. After that, he was gone for a while. So the two alibi witnesses don't really help the situation for your client, do they? They help the situation. I will say this. One, they talk about his injuries and the condition that he was in. And the first is the cousin of Mr. Ford talks about his inability to move. Second is about his sister, who then talked about specifically also about his inability to move until his arrest on the 17th of August. Both of them both talk about the condition of the scooter that he owned at that time, specifically Mr. Ford about his efforts to duct tape again, which is a defense exhibit that was introduced and presented about that scooter and the damage and where it is in terms of that with his sister about the scooter where it was found. I see I'm close to my time. I don't want to run over in terms of that. Thank you, counsel. May it please the court. Rosemary Bourne 
on behalf of the Commonwealth of Virginia. The general rule in Virginia is that the fact finder decides the credibility of the witness testimony, and only in extremely rare, indeed a handful of cases, of the large number of cases, in which people have raised this inherent incredibility issue, has this or the Supreme Court found the witness testimony to be inherently incredible as a matter of law. This is not one of those cases. Rather, the evidence here, based on the victim's testimony and the corroborating evidence, fully supported the jury's verdict that Rashad Weish maliciously wounded, strangled, abducted his estranged wife. There are reasons why this, that finding of inherent incredibility is so rare. First, this court has deference, gives deference to the factual findings and the inferences of the factual findings of the jury. The weight of the evidence is for the jury. The jury has the opportunity, unlike this court, to observe, to see, to hear the witness testimony. And this court does not reverse a factual finding unless that factual finding is plainly wrong. Ms. Ford, before we get to the merits, which is what you're arguing now, which you're certainly correct as far as your statement of the law is concerned, but Judge Lawrence asked your opponent about the preservation issue of this. This was a jury trial, and your opponent indicated that the closing argument is where this was preserved. That is insufficient, Your Honor. In Commonwealth v. Bass, the Supreme Court of Virginia said that an argument that a fact is, or that the witness is inherently incredible as a matter of law differs from a mere argument that there are inconsistent statements or credibility issues, because those are the usual facts that are decided by the fact finder. Well, inherent credibility is not a jury question. Credibility is a jury question. Inherent credibility as a matter of law is a question for the court, which would typically be raised in a motion to strike and not in a closing argument made to a jury. And that was not clearly done here for the reasons argued on brief. Were the court to reach the merits of this case, however, there was corroborating evidence of the victim's testimony. The first of the corroborating evidence was the victim's injuries here, which were observed the morning when she went to the hospital. They were observed by Officer Thomas. They were observed by the emergency room physician and two forensic nurses. She had bloody lips, bloody nose. Her eyes were swollen shut. She had cuts on her forehead, discoloration on her tongue, swelling on her neck. And these, there were photographs in the record showing these extensive injuries. And that was the morning after this attack occurred. Also, she immediately made statements to these professional witnesses that her husband was the perpetrator of this attack. Her description to these witnesses was similar to her testimony at trial, including that he tried to break her arm as she was beating on the wall to get help from her neighbor, that he dragged her back in the house when she ran and tried to escape, that he spit on her, that he choked her, and indeed that he bit her, which she told the second forensic nurse hours after this attack occurred. In addition, her demeanor, she was described as distraught, upset, tearful, struggling to breathe, and crying hours after this occurred. The text messages, which the court has mentioned, text messages from someone, as we know from his own witnesses, that he had been in an accident, saying that he had been in an accident. 
He sent photos of his injuries. He said he wanted to see his wife. He started an argument about his belief that she was having an affair and had somebody else in the house. He wanted to argue about their impending divorce, showing that he was angry at her. He said that he was coming over and that he was outside her door right around the time that this alleged attack occurred. So for all of these reasons, there was plenty of corroborating evidence of this attack. This is not a case, although the court could find without any corroborating evidence based on witness testimony alone, that this was not inherently incredible. Here there was ample corroborating evidence. The evidence that he does rely on does not establish inherent incredibility as a matter of law. The fact that the witness had prior convictions, it does not establish her inherent incredibility. That's Yates, the Yates case. In addition, her rights had been restored in this case, showing that she had moved on and had changed her life. In addition, prior inconsistent statements, although I would argue they were not, there were many more consistent statements here than there were inconsistent statements, but even inconsistent statements do not render testimony inherently incredible as a matter of law. He relies, however, on two witnesses, close relatives, and the jury could have considered those to be biased. In addition, those relatives did not actually establish any alibi. Neither of them could say that he was at, with them, or not at her house during the time of this attack. They were both unsure of exactly where he was. In addition, his cousin... Can I interrupt you there? Mr. Purnell just made the point in answer to my question a moment ago that you have a situation here where his relatives, Massenburg and Ford, said he was badly injured in that accident. It would be hard for him to get over there and do what he was accused of doing. Can you answer that? And also, I think the officer's testimony, when the officer went several days later to arrest him, the officer said that Mr. Weiss moved as if he hadn't even been in an accident. See any sort of limping or anything like that? Certainly, Your Honor. On page 191 of the appendix, the officer testified that, which was at odds with his sister's testimony, who had been speaking with him weekly at the jail after this occurred, that he was able to walk and noticed no limp. And I would also note that his wife, when she testified about this attack, acknowledged that he was limping, acknowledged that he was injured, and that he had sent her pictures of his injuries. The issue here is... The officer didn't see him until about five days later, right? That's correct. But the cousin, who, by the way, said when initially asked that he did not even know who his cousin was when the police originally showed up at his house, though he could be disbelieved on that basis alone by a reasonable jury, but the cousin acknowledged that he didn't know exactly what date this injury had occurred. Now, he did say he was lying down the day after it occurred, but Mr. Weiss, in his own text, said that it had happened the night before. And so he could have been in bed all day and then gotten on the scooter and driven over there at 12 p.m. at night, and none of that is at odds with the evidence presented, and none of that establishes inherent incredibility. You have two witnesses who are close family members who have reasons to be biased on behalf of Mr. Weiss, who are talking to him regularly at the jail, who have made inconsistent statements that is, frankly, disproven by other evidence, 
and a reasonable fact finder, and of course it was up to the fact finder to weigh the evidence in this case, could have rejected that testimony and believed instead the testimony of the victim. So for all of these reasons, the corroboration, the ample corroboration in this case of the victim's testimony, the biases, the potential biases and in fact established biases of his own witnesses and their inconsistent statements. The standard of review that this court must apply and the demanding showing in order to show inherent incredibility which the court has only overturned cases on this basis in a handful of cases. This does not meet that standard. He has failed to show, even if it was preserved, and I would certainly rely on brief that it was not, that her testimony was inherently incredible as a matter of law. And for those reasons, I would ask the court to affirm. Mr. Purnell, you have four minutes reserved. Thank you. Just to be clear in terms of number one is it is about the physical limitations that we talk about that in comparison to here. Before we get to that, let's circle back to the preservation issue. I heard you earlier articulate that it was closing argument where you allege the legal insufficiency of the evidence was preserved. No, and respectfully, I was not meaning that's where it was. I was just going back to a moment in terms of I know. Where do you assert, at what point and where do you assert that it was preserved? I believe it was preserved in terms of the argument at the closing of the initial evidence and after in regards to arguing about that there was about these injuries that existed and nothing to support anything to say that he was there, that meaning Mr. Weiss was located. Can you point to where in the record do you actually argue inherent incredibility? I did not bring the record here that I can point today. I will tell the court that now. I see counsel at page 260 of the record. You said, I say there are things that necessarily are not consistent in terms of when she made statements, in terms of it the court can as well judge the credibility, and there's some discussion of credibility there. Is that probably the best instance of where it was preserved in the motion? That may be the best in terms of that. I can tell you as a matter in terms of what I say is law. I'm not, and that's why I'm being respectful. I know in terms of as I say to the court that where I was in the position that as I said all along and even on brief, I don't question about that there were injuries that have existed and we have not argued that these are self-inflicted by no means. And that is clearly there. The question is about the perpetrator in terms of that in comparison about his physical capabilities at the time and the lack of anything that would put him at that location from any moment, anything to support that. That's where we are. I do understand and respect that there is circumstantial evidence and direct evidence, and here this is a direct evidence case along there are circumstantial evidence about her injuries that come about. That is the question. Here on behalf, that's where we talk about the inherent credibility about a man with this limitation, and it is known ahead of time that he has the injury both by his words and text during earlier in the night and by the photo along with it, along with the location where he talks about the accident happening on a nine-mile road and that where he's saying that he is not able to move. So that's not a question. What is then those two other witnesses follow from there to support exactly about he has injuries. The scooter is then able to be seen. And I'll say the last point about so I can understand about Mr. Ford. There's nothing unusual about people talking to the police and not necessarily saying anything in terms of that. 
people are afraid of the police and many different things when they show up at their home and they're unannounced and unexpected. And part of the testimony that exists for Mr. Ford is exactly that they believe he was Mr. Weish and then started to make an arrest of him. That is the uncontradicted testimony about Mr. Ford in terms of that. People are skittish. That is a normal reaction. And we don't, for as much as we talk about in the law and in the court, that we're asking for My truth. My question on Mr. Ford is not that he was scared or denied that he even knew who Mr. Weish was initially, but that when he did acknowledge, he basically left a wide open period in there for this to have occurred because he didn't say Weish was with me during all of that time. That is correct, and I will tell the court only that I can say limited by what witnesses I could have available, those are what I presented. A witness not available I could not present by any means because they weren't competent. So therefore, I'm left to present what I had. That's the witnesses I had to be able to present. I thank you before my time runs out. Thank you again for your time. Thank you, counsel. The case is now submitted and will come down. The proceeding has been a production of Ben Glass Law, a Fairfax, Virginia-based personal injury and long-term disability law firm. For a free evaluation of your claim, visit us at benglasslaw.com or call us at 703-591-9829.